You are listening to an episode of the Technology Consulting Series on Design Talk. Hello, I'm Alan Higgins. We start this season in conversation with Sean McGarrahy. Sean, tell us a little about your own career before we look inside the business of technology consulting. Thanks, Alan. So um, I've had a long and varied career. I started out as an engineering student and did a master's in maths after that, then moved out to be a consultant, came back and did a PhD and have been in academia ever since. Uh, I have a very poor understanding of what tech consulting really is. Well, I think the old saying that a consultant is somebody who borrows your watch to tell you the time is still relevant and I think always will be because that's what a consultant is. They're someone who goes in, picks your brains, tries to give you a new view of what it is your company needs to do that you mightn't have had previously, and then hopefully uh, gets paid before they they run off and everything falls apart, because that happens too. So I think a consultant is someone who's there for a job, but always with an eye for the longer-term repeat business. And as you move up in a consulting organisation, you're looking to develop long-term relationships with companies and repeat business because basically you want to have a, a steady income flow. This is not something you'll be thinking of on day one, but as you move up in the organization, you will. And you, you eventually get to the manager stage where it's your job to go out and hunt for business. And you do that by knowing the people in the business community in Dublin, which is not very big. The idea of the consultant is an individual. and Not necessarily an individual. Right. can definitely be a team. So quite often we would go in as a team of maybe four or five, or in a very, very big project, you could have 10 or 12. Now, the consulting group I worked for uh, was called Vision Consulting. I was employee number 41 or 42. But by the time I left, the company had grown to be more than 250. So there's all kinds of interesting things that happen. You go through a sort of phase change when a company hits 100, and you stop knowing everybody in the company. And they have to bring in things like hierarchical management and so on. So the stuff at the start where you knew everybody and everything was flat, that changed and that caused some issues inside the organization. Of course, you can't let the clients see that. The clients see you as... The, the experts, your experts. Well, yes, the experts. But there's another view of the consultant as well. Um, there can be resentment inside a con- uh, client organization from different levels because of that. We'll talk about that in a minute, the, the way you engage with the client. But um, so I, I did want to highlight that, that the notion that the consultant, it's a kind of solo stroke, small team role. And yet in the normal run of business, you're part of a larger organization. You're a pod from uh, uh, the services firm going out into client sites. So you have a lot of supports. It's not the, the lonely cowboy. Um, you, you may well be able to draw on expertise back home, so to speak, in your own um, company who, who may have had experience of similar projects in the past. And it's fair to say you, you do that, but at the same time, you end up with a, a deep knowledge of your client if you're there for even a few months. And the projects I worked on range from typically between six and 18 months. And you would have a lot of engagement with the client in both a personal level and understanding their business. So at the end of the day, you would be the expert on that client's business as much as anyone in the client itself. So you start off borrowing their watch, but you end up telling the the time by yourself. Even being part of the mechanism. Well, um, there's a danger in consulting organization of people going native. 
um, actually being absorbed into the way of thinking of the client. And that's something that the parent company, the consulting organization, typically is quite careful about. So that you'll have um, get-togethers of the consulting organization where maybe every project steps up and gives a five-minute talk about their project, you know, get-togethers of that nature to keep you aware that, you know, your home is the consulting company and the client is a temporary um, arrangement. I've heard uh, a similar perspective from the client's point of view in terms of maintaining a kind of an arm's-length relationship with the consultants they bring on site. In fact, some organizations deliberately aim to have multiple consultancies working at the same time on their team so that they're kind of managing the knowledge in in a way. Yes, I've I've seen one or two instances of that. I've seen a lot of instances where you would have maybe independent contractors who are not actually, uh, they'd be sole traders, right? They're not actually formal consulting organization, but they would have knowledge of a particular topic and they'd be just come in, do the job, put in their pay sheets and get out. And they're consultants just the same, really, in a they, way. They are. They are, in a way. But they, the ones that we worked with now, it, it may be specific to the kind of tech work we did, they would come in with a particular skill, like maybe in, believe it or not, COBOL programming. I'm thinking of the year 2000, the Y2K bug, when for about two or three years before that, COBOL programmers could name their price because the banks were terrified of what would happen come the 1st of January, the year 2000. And it wasn't one bug, of course, it was thousands of small bugs. But basically, these guys came in, they charged whatever. They, it was up to them to sort out their own taxes and things like that as sole traders. But the consulting organization, you're paid a salary, and it's up to the managers of that organization then to sort out tax and so on and PAYE. So that's that's the distinction I'm thinking of. The contractor is kind of an individual consulting organization. You're not an individual, you're on a salary, but you have the ability to draw on the expertise within the company. So that's what's different between the two roles. The similarities would be that you're expecting both those people to be experts in an area. Yes. Uh, In my experience, maybe the contractor's expertise might be in a more focused and perhaps tighter and more technical area. And the management of that person would still be done either by the consulting organization or maybe by the client themselves because this is the thing of course the consulting organization is typically embedded into a team inside the client i can think of one project in particular with a major bank which did last the 18 months and at the end it was almost invisible who was consultant and who was bank we actually just became so embedded and part of the team that that it was actually really you know you just call across the room to whoever it is and you weren't even making a distinction. Yeah, you'd become their friends, yes. they'd become your friends. Yeah. You went out on Friday nights. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a really important thing, I have to say, for the consultant, is get that social thing going. Because there's a danger of resentment. It's not necessarily going to be there, but there's always that possibility. And you have to break down those barriers, and you've got to get to know those people. So you've touched on the difficulties of consulting in terms of the client uh, accepting the role of the consultant, the, even though they're bringing you in, you know, employees maybe see conflicts and what have you. Um, I, I want to touch on the notion we've talked about some of the tech, the, the expertise that you bring in, but I see consultancy uh, is often sort of blurs between technical competencies and strategic transformational competencies. Is there a clear line or divide between the two? Do you have a 
strategy consultant and a tech consultant? Are they two, two different, different beasts? They may and they may not be. I can think of one project where it was effectively a business reorganization. So there was a lot of strategy going on there. But in allied to that was the implementation of a technical system to support the new business processes. And we started off on this fourth floor of this big building in Hume House. And it was a big open plan area. And on one wall, we put up post-its describing the current business processes, many of them. And the wall was effectively covered with these post-its. They showed the steps in the business processes. Nothing at all to do with the technical side. This is just saying, what does the business do for each of these tasks it has to carry out day to day? And we labelled the post-its purple or green or yellow. So green would be crucial, yellow would be important, and purple or pink as they were could possibly be dispensed with. And at the end, 80% of the post-its were pink. So the real value we were giving was in the business process analysis, business process redesign. And in fact, our company developed a technical tool around doing this business process redesign as a as an extra way to, I suppose, in, in improve cash flow. But that was a crucial first step. And I think that it's, it is a very blurry line. A good consultant is going in there not to work within the parameters that the client is providing, but to bring a new way of thinking. And that obviously can be a new way of developing a piece of code, but it's more important and higher value, a new way of thinking about your business. And that's, I think, where the successful projects I was on, that was the real impact that the client found as well. That even though they've been in the business for a long time, they're so close to it, they don't see what are the possible changes you could make. I can see a a reflection between your description of the business process mapping and a requirements tool called Moscow, must have, could have, would be nice to have if we had enough time and money. so that overlay is interesting, the, the, the mirroring of those two. And I can also see the sensitivity on business process affecting people's jobs. Yeah. There's a number of aspects to that. Um, typically, if you're developing a system that's going to help the company reduce costs, those costs are in the form of people losing their jobs. And maybe some of them, or a lot of them, will be repositioned to use the tool and therefore make themselves more efficient. But of course, there's less need for those people. And that's maybe the most difficult thing is to, to get these people to help you because it's not really in their interest to do that, or at least not in some of their interests. So, um, and then this can happen at a higher level too because you could have middle managers who are feeling threatened that if, um, if there's no need for this team anymore of people who are doing some basic day-to-day work, What's the need for me as a manager of them? And yet you have to work with, with those folks as well. I teach an interesting case study of an American engineering firm that outsourced to uh, offshore suppliers. And they were very sensitive about this issue of redeploying staff. And they made a decision not to uh, make people redundant, but to attempt to 
harness their existing staff in new innovative areas and um, so that they were constantly looking to transform the business beyond just the operating efficiencies but into new areas and and i think that that is certainly the the legend you have to create that the possibility is there whether it comes to be that way you don't know until the end and you're typically not aware of the thought processes of the high level decision makers who are the people who decide it's all very dark it um, is. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry not to but uh, this feeds back into politics of the organization um you have to be aware of the politics this is what i was taught on day one you have to be aware of the politics but don't play them because you don't know what the consequences will be and also you could be jeopardizing a long-term relationship with the firm that is very interesting so you have to be aware of the politics and yet not be part of the politics. Yes. You, the, whole, the whole consulting organization could get turfed out if one person starts manipulating things or, yeah. or doing okay, things inside. Yeah, Treat, become, trying to be an inside player yeah. um, or going beyond their remit. Hmm. It gets more complicated, of course, because um, another thing uh, the owner of our company used to say, if the client is not offering you a job, you're doing something wrong. And I did, in fact, get offered jobs pretty much by all the clients I worked for. So that's, that's a sign that you're doing a good job if they actually want to bring you in-house. So how does, how does that work with the politics back in your parent that's organization? That's what brought it to my mind. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, you're now potentially trying to talk to two masters and you've got two conflicting interests. It's up to you. I mean, as, as an individual, of course, you may feel this is a good step for me. But I, I think one thing I would say about the consulting role, it is an amazing opportunity to learn about four, five, six different kinds of business in just a few years. And then your CV looks so good. I was going to ask you this question. Would you consider yourself a generalist or a specialist? And we hear about this organizations needing T-shaped people. Do you need, is T-shaped enough? Um, no, I don't think it is. Um, first of all, when you've been in the consulting role for a while, you've done a few different projects with different kinds of business, you will end up being deep in a few different areas in the sense of business competencies. You'll know the insurance business or you'll know the banking business, or at least you'll know part of it. And that's a transferable skill because it may well happen, and it's a small place, Dublin, it may well happen that you do some work for one bank and then next week another bank comes along and says, oh, we'd like you to do the same thing for us. Now you're in a bit of a conflict because you can't really expose what you did for the first client and yet you've picked up all that knowledge. So what you've got to do is decouple and compartmentalize your brain so that you're not conveying any secrets because it is confidential what you've done for the first client. You can't convey any of that to the second, but you've still got some knowledge of the, the business area. You've also got some knowledge of the technical approaches that worked and you can use those, but you obviously can't reproduce exactly what you did for the first client. That's uh, fascinating. I think um, domain knowledge is probably one of the hardest things for a consultancy firm to acquire because they bring in a sort of rare specialist technical competencies. Yeah. Um, and so it's in the interest of the consulting firm as a supplier to somehow aggregate the general generalized uh, learnings that you've acquired yes and at the individual level too because as you if you're in if you're in the consulting world for 10 years you've probably worked in 
the majority of types of business out there. I mean, I ended up working in airline industry, banks, mortgages, um, software development. Actually, did a bit of software development in there as well. I worked as a manager in Scotland in electricity industry. So you end up with a huge range of areas. And because you're in them for at least a year, a lot of the time, you end up quite deep in those areas. And at the end, it's like all modeling exercises. The first and most crucial thing is to understand the problem and understand the business background. You can bring your hammer, but if the question is not a nail, that's no good. You have to adapt your approach to the problem, not the other way around. And you said earlier that you're coming in with technical expertise. Well, you are, but it has to be the servant of the business question and the business problem. And that's crucial because you don't want to force the wrong solution onto the problem just because that happens to be what you're comfortable with. So the technical side is secondary and it's the business side that's primary. And I think that's something that all consultants need to be aware of because it's quite easy and it happened to me, it's quite easy to walk in thinking, okay, so I'll just apply this technique. Not necessarily the case. So you, you mentioned that Dublin's a small city in a sense, um, businesses, local, interconnected. They know each other, yeah. Um, in a sense, uh, Dublin and the UK perhaps also is is a fantastic sandbox to build your career. Sure. Um, our company set up a, an office in New York. The opportunities are there, and I think a lot of the principles of consulting, listening, things like that, they carry over. I seem to be talking only about the soft side of consulting, which is odd, but I'm expecting that the people listening to this have got the technical tools and what they don't have is maybe the the wherewithal to fit them into a, a project in a client organization. So the things that I focused on coming into today were you've got to be able to listen because you've got to make sure you're solving the right problem. If there's a danger of that not being the case, you have to step back and convince the client that this is not what you need to do. You actually need to do something else. And that's, that's crucial because at the end of the day, that's how you gain their trust, by showing them that you have their interests at heart. And it would be very easy to take the money and run and just do what you're being told. But sometimes it takes a little bit of effort and thoughtfulness to say to the client, well, actually, if you did this or if you stood back and reassessed, that might be in your long-term interests even better. Sometimes you're shooting yourself in the foot because you might cut yourself out of a quick and easy project. Would you ever admit to the limits of your knowledge? Absolutely. I mean, the consultant has this aura or is supposed to have this aura, right? They're supposed to be this magician who knows everything. But you will go in there and you will not know about that business. So what you do is you show your quick learner and you listen and you engage and you start to contribute quite early if you are asking people, so why are you doing that? Because maybe you've already make them think, why are we doing this? And you're bringing a way of thinking. You're bringing an openness that's not always present in the client because they've done it like this for years. They're not aware of another way of doing things. So even you admitting that you don't know their business and asking probing questions is already a contribution. That can, that can happen. I've seen that happen. So following up that point there on, on being vulnerable, um, opening yourself to learning from the client, uh, do you set out to become friends with the client, with, with people? Do you, do you work on the relationships at that level? Yeah, you have to. Um, you can't afford to be seen to be aloof or walking in thinking you're, you're better than them. You've, 
you have to okay so there's always um always a role you have to play of of appearing to be expert in something otherwise why are you there but at the same time admitting i'm not an expert on this particular topic but give me a week and i will be okay so this is the borrowing the watch to tell the time thing i think that the expert the expertise you bring is this this way of thinking as well as the toolkit you have of course that, that's crucial too that's that's what you're selling but by the time you've been there for a month and you've read and you've put in the hours by the way uh, consulting famous for the long hours i've been there till four in the morning on occasions um, you put in the hours you you get on top of all the documents that are thrown at you in the first week or so and then you're ready to start hopefully really producing with any luck there will be other members of the your own organization there with you who may or may not now I'm talking to someone who's uh, starting off is and and they will hopefully have more knowledge than you and are able to bring you up to speed as well maybe out, outside the client's view sure you're not really expected to do it all by yourself in fact not touching base with others would be a problem wouldn't it absolutely yeah touch base as often as you can with your own folks as well your own consulting organization now they're probably tight for time too it's the nature of the business peaks and troughs um there are times when you're sitting on the bench for 3 months in that case you're trying to learn about new technology or something you're back home back back at the consulting organization then all of a sudden big job comes along 20 people needed we only have 10 <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah, one of our previous speakers on another series was saying one of the best uh, changes they'd made was having an internal project of their own that ticked over and that allowed for that sort of uh, back working back at home to be structured and purposeful. Yeah, we had um, a couple of projects like that. I remember working on one of them was that tool I mentioned a little while back of a, a tool that actually helps with business process redesign and effectively a bit like computer science pro- flowcharts. But applied to business processes, and we developed that tool in house, and it became very handy. Then it speeded up the the process for later client engagements. Um, but that was one of those things that people who were on the bench could could actually contribute to. Uh, a final question: What are the ethical concerns for a consultant? Well, one would be along the lines of you've done something for one client in a particular business area, another organization has learned of this somehow because they all talk to each other of course and then they approach you for doing the same work and there is a danger of you accidentally reusing some things that you've done for the first client for the second um playing politics is always an ethical minefield as well because you don't want to back one side over another and in particular you don't want to back the wrong horse from the point of view of long term income for the company other ethical issues confidentiality ipr intellectual yes, property rights and the like stuff. and in the current era i suppose with algorithmic decision making becoming more popular with machine learning um we see perhaps the inappropriate use of technology biased uh, uh training biases it may bleed over into consulting but that probably is mostly an issue at at a higher level of tools the algorithm well the algorithm is as it is it may have assumptions built into it of course and these are often unconscious assumptions but your point about the training set being biased that's that is a major issue because if you've drawn your training set from a narrow portion of the population 
then that's all that the the taught machine learner knows about. And so that's that's a wide-ranging issue. And I don't think an individual consulting organization can actually do a whole lot about that. It's interesting, the idea of the ethics spanning both the sort of social ethics, um, cultural ethics, and this kind of machine ethics. And t- certainly tech consulting uh, needs to be aware of all those areas. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just because you sell someone a gun, does that make you guilty or innocent if they use it? Yeah, the values of the organization have to come into play. You know who you're selling to, who you're working for. Yeah. Are there any last pieces of advice? Well, yeah, I think... I'm, I'm thinking of the, the audience here as possibly being people who are thinking of a consulting career. And I would say to them, it's a, a fantastic opportunity to move around and learn lots and lots of different areas of business. You, you learn so much quicker than if you stayed in one business, one organization all the time. But I would give the same advice that I would give to anyone starting off. You move on after two years. Always be aware of the big picture. It's very, very easy when you're um, a consultant to just focus on your own little silo. But you have to be aware of the currents in the organization as a whole. And typically you could be in a very, very big team, but a small part of it because the client has their own team working on this and they've brought in a bit of expertise from outside. So just be aware of what are the, the currents moving around. The way you achieve this is by just getting to know people. And that's really, really crucial. It's got to be open-minded and friendly and listen. There's an old saying, nobody listens, everyone's waiting for their turn to talk. If you listen, it's, it's a real benefit. You will find out stuff. Yeah, that's, that's more or less it. Well, thank you very much, Sean. You sketched the landscape that we're going to be exploring. Thank you, Alan. We'll wrap up there. I thank you for listening. The music is Impulse by Ben Prunty from his album Chromatic T-Rex and used with his permission. 